Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. Our first question, could you talk about the spectrum of sexual addiction? My husband acted out with massages, prostitutes, and dating apps over the span of our 12-year marriage, but it wasn't a constant thing. In other words, he would go a year at a time with no acting out. Is this still considered a sexual addiction and is treatment different for someone who doesn't have the constant continuous compulsion to act out? Well, that's a hard question to answer. Maybe because you know what the answer might be, Tammy, but um, to you, um, So I would just really think about this way. People who struggle with secretive sexual behaviors, whether it's massage parlors or porn or, you know, whatever that is, and we don't always know exactly what they're doing. I promise you, we can hide things pretty well. I don't really always believe them when they say, oh, they've been through a whole run of acting out and then it stopped and then it started again. What I mostly encounter is men who have, or women, who told their, told their spouse as much as their spouse already knows, like, oh, yeah, you knew I was doing this till April, but that was it. I stopped, or I started going to 12 steps, and I stopped, and then a year and a half later, you caught me, and oh, my goodness, you know, but I just started. And so there's often these gaps where someone will say, oh, you know, it stopped that entire time. And if someone were in treatment, like the guys who are there right now, I would probably doubt that. And as a spouse, I would absolutely want to believe that were true. And in your case, I hope it is. Um, There are other people, there are people who have sort of problematic sexual behavior that shows up when they are Um, dealing with extreme stress or anxiety, like someone dies or something like that, or they have a breakup. But I have not seen people in extreme. So when you talk about a spectrum, what I think about is, you know, is it two nights a week or 10 nights a week? You know, that's, there aren't 10 nights a week. 10 nights a week. Is it twice a day or, or every single day? Or, you know, or is there escalation in the behavior? They started here and they ended up there. So when I think of, um, what's the word you had of spectrum, I think of spectrum of type of behavior. I do think of a spectrum of frequency of behavior, but I'm not thinking like there's going to be a year and a half in between. So that would not sound like, in fact, I wouldn't really think that person was a sex addict, but I think more likely they're lying. Um, Tammy? I wonder what else he was doing, because this makes me go, okay, I didn't do those things, but was he drinking or using drugs? Was he eating a lot of food or, you know, really focused on working out. I mean, to, to me, it's like, okay, I'm not doing those things for a while. And I'm, I'm kind of going like, well, did you, you know, were you watching porn instead? You know, cause I'm so, so it's like, you know, what, what was he substituting is my wondering is, you know, what else was he doing? Cause this to me is like, that's all, you know, that's a fair amount of stuff. And um, so I'd be curious about that aspect of it, but on, on the seekingintegrity.com site under the resource tab is a little self-test and that can be a kind of an indicator. It's not as comprehensive as we do for the assessments of the guys that are coming into treatment, but it can be, you know, a little guideline to, to kind of figure it out. But here's the deal. I mean, regardless of how much it is, it's still to me an intimacy disorder. He cheated on you. Like if he flat out cheated on you, unless you agreed to these things, which I doubt, um, 
so to me, it's like, you know, there's, there's a problem here and what the label actually is, is less relevant. It's more, what do you need to do to address those issues? So, um, you know, hopefully that gives you a little shift, but yeah, I'm, I don't believe hundred percent either. So. And I would say, Tammy, this is someone who might go see a qualified therapist or ask their spouse to see a qualified therapist and have a meaningful conversation about what's going on, because uh, having it come up to the room and in the room as organized by somebody like me who knows what they're doing, I think it will be a very different conversation. Um, and they will hear things that you don't hear, my guess is. Oh, by the way, Tammy, someone wrote in how to find this. This is a podcast, too, right? We are a podcast, right? True. Okay. Yes, on on sexandrelationshiphealing.com, you can find a podcast tab, and there are three different podcasts identified on that, and there's different episodes. They're also identified as, you know, for the addict, for the partner, for the couple, so that, you know, you can kind of get an, an idea of here's some ones that you may want to consider, you know, kind of where to start, so... Plus, we have a great podcast cover, you and I. I love that. We do. Yeah. Okay. They're all great. Anyway. So. Okay. So the next it. question is, what changes occur in the sex addict brain after 90 days of sobriety? Any obvious change in the sex, in the addict's attitude and behavior? Yeah. You know, I, I um, have never liked this idea of magical numbers, which is, you know, if I abstain from sex for six months or if my partner and I don't do this for 30 days, this is a very individual question. I think what works for the person, what works for the couple. Um, for myself, I took six months out at one time from any kind of behavior because I wanted to experience myself in the world just without going like this or deciding what I was going to go where based on it. Did somebody desire me and all that? So, but this whole idea of um, 90 days, your brain clicks into this and, you know, the brain doesn't work that way. It, this is an adaptation and evolution pieces fall into place at different times for different people. Um, you know, I know people who truly go to program, they see a therapist and they don't act out anymore. I don't know many of them. Um, and then I know who people who go to treatment and they, they're, they're working on it for months and months and they end up acting out as soon as they leave for home. So I really think it's very individual. And I will really, first of all, I don't trust. And second of all, I don't believe in this concept that at 30 days, this happens or at 90 days that happens because this behavior is driven by trauma. It's driven by abuse. It's driven by defenses and fears and all that stuff that you spouses don't care about, understandably, because you've been hurt. But for our work, what I can accomplish, perhaps, is a, as a therapy client and 12-step person in three months, it might take someone else three years. So um, in answer to your question, I don't think there are many changes that occur. I think it's a gradual process. And I think in terms of changes in their attitudes and behaviors, as Tammy and I often say, um, it takes... It doesn't take that long if you work at it to get sober, but it takes a really long time to stop being an asshole. Actually, you wouldn't say it that way, Tammy. Um, narcissism and problematic personality traits are a longer term issue. Having empathy is one of the last things, unfortunately, that happens. Um, you know, I can work with someone who's been sober a year and they're just beginning to figure out how to listen um, because they've never listened to a partner before. Um, I did a write, a write a book for men with this issue called Out of the Doghouse, a relationship-saving guide for men caught cheating. And it is because not sex-addicted men, but I have never met a man ever anywhere who understands how to heal the wound of infidelity with a woman. 
Um, we just seem to underestimate it big time. And then we get annoyed when you're still angry at us after three months. So um, that's why I wrote Doghouse. But, um, you know, what I would expect to see is a little bit more closeness, a little bit more availability, a little bit more honesty. Um, you know, I think you'll know in your gut if things are changing or if they're not, you know. Anyway, that's that's my answer. Tammy? Yeah, and I'm I'm going to tag onto that. I you know I think the stopping the behavior for ninety days good, but it's you know compared to it depends how old the person is. You know compared to lifespan, you know this the the wounds the deeper issues are years and usually decades old. So ninety days is great, but it's just the start. So um, I think for someone to have ninety days is momentous for the addict in that. I've made it 90 days, you know, we get chips when we go to 12 step meetings, you know, that's all great, but it still is, you know, early in the process and it really takes a lot longer. You know, it's, it's dealing with all of these things that we work so hard to escape, you know, for years and decades. So having to come to the reality of like, it's really challenging. There's often quite frankly, a pink cloud period in early recovery that's six or nine months. So, I mean, you're still in the early cusp of that, you know, from that standpoint. And then it, then it's like, oh, you know, because recovery is great. And then it's like, oh, reality is challenging, you know? So, but but having the right support, having the right tools to use. I just put the work groups in the chat. So on the seekingintegrity.com site, Dr. Rob mentioned the out of the doghouse work or work book, but we also have a workbook and a, um, a work group. Those are six week long facilitated live facilitated groups to help, you know, engage with that, go through the homework, you know, be peer support for things. So, so it's really helpful from the standpoint of, you know, getting that foundation. We have a betrayed partner group starting April 6th. We have sex addiction, 101, porn addiction, all of these things are useful tools. None of them are enough alone, but, but, you know, combining all of those things. So if he has just stopped for 90 days, I, my prognosis or hope would be not good. If he is really actively doing things on a daily basis to change, you know, then, then be hopeful, cautious, but hopeful. So, so the next question. I kind of answered it some. I know, but you but need I, to answer it because so people can hear no, it. No, 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 I will. I just like, I just wanted to write a little bit because I wanted yeah. to use the term. So yeah. the question is. Is it normal to wax and wane your feelings as a spouse that's been betrayed towards the SA husband? Sometimes I don't even want my husband to touch me. And other times I feel like I want to be sexual and close to my husband. I feel like I'm sending mixed messages. Well, I'm less concerned with the messages you're sending than in how you feel about all of this. And we do have a term which um, a couple of friends of mine coined called ambivalent love. And I think it is perfectly well described as the idea of looking over at you. And I think, oh, you're just the best thing. And I just love you and look at you with our kids or whatever. And then an hour later, you, you know, I see you watching TV and I think you might be watching something, uh, you know, a little sleazy and I freaking hate you. And I've always hated you. And so it's this idea of bouncing back and forth between I, I love you and I really, really am angry at you that makes people crazy. And they think what's wrong with me that I'm feeling so confused about how I feel. And I think when you've been kind of hit over the head with a bat, it's like you're having, hold on to this, Tammy, an emotional concussion 
That's a good oh, one. I like that. I'm writing it's it down. It's like you're having an emotional concussion. You've been hit over the head and you're disoriented and you don't know whether this is the right way to, and you're having both feelings at the same time, or at least within short periods. You know, usually you're feeling really loving towards someone and then maybe they do something a few weeks later and you're mad. It's not like that. It's like loving them and hating them at the same time or within a short period of time. And this is very normal and very typical. You may be sending mixed messages now to the other part of your question, but I think you have to say that to your husband. You know, I am really, um, well, first I think a boundary would be good. Like I'm not going to have sex with you for 30 days or 60 days or so be clear with yourself. Cause I think it, you know, it applies with being physical. Like if I'm sexual with you and then I start to feel those really bad feelings looking at you the next morning, I'm going to feel bad about myself because I'll feel like I betrayed the anger that I'm now feeling the next day. So I think setting a boundary, like, you know, we're not going to be sexual for, you know, a short period of time while I figure all this out um, allows you the time to sit back and say, I want to be sexual, but it's probably not a good, you know, to go through all that. And once you set a boundary, I would tell him, you know, I, obviously that you've set the boundary, but also why, which is you feel like you're giving mixed signals. You really haven't kind of settled down into how you really feel or how to come to terms with this. And I say this over and over again here, and I'm sure Tammy's tired of hearing at it, hearing it, but I say to all of you, why would you be sexual with someone you don't trust? And so if your head and heart, you know, you don't trust this person, even though sometimes you look over them with love, I wouldn't be sexual and I would tell that truth, which is I'm really ambivalent about how I feel about you right now. And I actually don't get tired of you saying that. I actually, when I'm talking to people say, Dr. as Dr. Rob often says, so I, I continue the message. So, okay, next question. At age 54, I've recently begin, I'm recently beginning to see the connection between my sexual addiction and my acting out is tied to feelings about myself. I had an off the charts narcissistic father that I booted out of my life 17 years ago. My question is how much damage can a narcissistic parent cause? Well, I think they can cause enough damage so that we, we can become sexually addicted. And I would say, even though they may or may not be aware of it, that probably 80 to 90% of the people, men I see in treatment have been used by a parent who was either vulnerable or alcoholic. My mother was mentally ill and they, they reached out to us as their source of support rather than us being supported by them. Um, and it's called, uh, it's called covert incest. Some people call it profound enmeshment, but what it means is that we often don't learn how to take care of ourselves. We look out there for all our validation because that's how we learn to validate ourselves is by pleasing these big people. So in any case, um, I think that, by the way, I also think, I don't know what you're doing for your recovery, but I think that it's in, less important to see the connection and more important to be working on sobriety. So my hope is that you're going to 12-step meetings, you're dropping in some of our groups, which are free, or some of the other places you can go to get support with other people who are in recovery and find your sobriety. Because I've worked with too many people, both as a therapist and people, friends and program, who learned everything about whatever happened to them. And they went to endless therapy and they learned who did this, why mom did that. And it didn't stop them from being out there acting out and lying about it. They just have had insight into why, by the way, us addicts, we always want to know why, why am I like this? Why did I, why, why? And of course it's because it's all about us and we love talking about ourselves. So teach me more about me. 
Um, I, I think you have to get some solid sobriety under, under you because looking back at the past is uh, anxiety producing and it brings up all kinds of feelings and we need to be stable in our sobriety so that we can look at that kind of stuff. But in any case, yes, it is absolutely related. I would say that if you've just recently begun to see the connection, then you have no idea how much damage it can cause. But again, it's different for different people. And it affects, you know, you can grow up in the same family and have very different experiences. Um, my mom used me. She didn't use another sibling. You know, um, some people use all. I mean, it's just very different. I know families that have 10 kids. Nobody gets much of everything, anything. And that's a whole different set of experiences. So anyway, um, yes, yes. And work on yourself. Yeah, and lots of resources. The work groups are a start. We have a treatment program, as Dr. Rob just alluded to. The guys that come to us have underlying issues. It's all of that stuff. So stopping the problematic behavior, but then addressing the underlying wounds. You know, but you know, people call, well, I have trauma. Of course you do. Trauma, abuse, abandonment, neglect, grief, loss. There's something that makes this crazy behavior that we're doing make sound like a good idea so so you know there there's help and hope so okay ready for the next one i'm a sex addict i have addictions not chemical with severe trauma abuse do you recommend going cold turkey from all behaviors or slowly working on stopping each destructive behavior i notice when i go to get a sponsor or stop all behaviors at once i go to have a panic attack and feel like i'm going to die since i've used it all for coping for decades now well, there's a number of questions in there, Tammy, and, you know, we haven't done this for a while, but would you mind maybe picking some out and feeding them to me? Because I want to answer as much as I can. Okay. The first part is identifying that it's co-occurring, not chemicals, but, you know, all the underlying issues that we just talked about. So, but the, you know, how do you proceed when you've got lots of compulsive behaviors? Do you pick away mm. at the most harmful first? Because right. otherwise it's, you know, causing so much anxiety well, trying to focus on all of them at once. Well, the problem is, and you've probably heard people say this before, that working with addiction is like whack-a-mole. You know, you, you knock down the thing in one spot and then it comes up in the other spot. You know, it's like those old games uh, at places they probably don't have them anymore. But in any case, um, part of the challenge for some of us is that what's underlying is driving us so powerfully or with so much emotional energy that we, it, it keeps bubbling up. And then all of a sudden we, we gain 50 pounds or we're running to the casino or gambling the stock market or working 80 hours a week, or, you know, our life is out of balance and we push our life out of balance because it's easier. It's more familiar to have a problem out there than to actually look at what's going on inside. So, um, this is, by the way, now is when I will say this is when someone should be in treatment, because what I I've made a list of why people should come to treatment. Lord knows I know where it is. Um, but one of them is extreme, profound conflict in a coupleship where you're going to lose something very important if you don't get help now. Um, one of the others is when you try to put down one addiction and the other one comes up and you can't really get sober no matter how hard you try because you keep going round and round, that is also, I think, a reason to be in a safe environment so that you can put them all down and deal with the panic. Um, you know, when you are being observed and supported by people 24-7, um, unless you have a psychiatric issue, which I'll mention in a moment, um, you know, you're going to have to sit there and work through it. You're going to have to cry and yell and do whatever you need to do in your panic, and we'll all hold you until it's over, you know, emotionally hold you. And, um, and then you'll learn that you can get through that without acting out. But it, sometimes it takes 
meaningful experiential experience experience of putting it all down and getting a lot of support in its place. The thing about panic attacks, you know, what I usually hear from people is when they go cold turkey and they're not chemical addicts, they get overwhelmed emotionally, they really struggle, they get depressed, they feel all this longing and emptiness, but panic attacks is strong. You know, and feeling like I'm going to die, that's a very strong statement. So if that were me, I would be in a psychiatrist's office saying, you know, I have a bunch of compulsive behaviors and, you know, I'm working on those. But the problem is, is when you can say, you don't have to say sex, as Lord knows they don't understand that. But you can say food and gambling or whatever, and then say, you know, I think underlying that is some depression or some anxiety or something I don't understand, because when I put them down, you know, I get extremely anxious and overwhelmed. That, by the way, that's counterintuitive to healing because if you put them down and then you go into panic, I would rather use than be in a panic all the time. So it sounds like you need more help than you're getting. And uh, I think a medical professional in this case. Um, yeah, that's, those are my thoughts. A qualified, and you mentioned it, say I have these compulsive behaviors. You want somebody who understands addiction because not all of the psychiatric professionals do so you you really do so when guys come to a seeking integrity treatment program not everybody needs to have an evaluation but some of them do benefit from that because they do have some underlying you know clinical depression or clinical anxiety ocd adhd something so then you know scheduling um an appointment with that particular professional who really understands addiction as well as those you know to get on sometimes you know a time release medication that you know supports you know okay now they're okay so that they can deal with you know the emotional stuff so but yeah i mean here's the thing i was thinking too dr david fawcett who has a webinar on wednesdays he's a, a team member at seeking integrity treatment program but he talks about why we you know are a non-smoke non-vape facility because you know continuing to keep that dopamine going you, you never you're you're doing the whack-a-mole that dr rob was talking about you never get any kind of level of freedom from the behaviors you're just using a different one i've used the analogy the garbage can addiction of like well i can't do that one so i'm gonna do this one you know it's whatever is handy at the moment to soothe still not addressing those underlying wounds so you also alluded decades old now so i you know i would invite you to get the level of help that's going to help you so that you don't have to for the next bunch of decades you know struggle with the same issues Okay, ready? Next one. Would you please elaborate on why you do not believe that love addicts in recovery can ever choose a healthy partner or be oh. chosen by a healthy partner? Hmm. Okay, well, I think this goes beyond love addiction. I think all of us choose people at a very similar level of emotional functioning as us. Does that mean that I have to get involved with an addict? No. Does that have to mean I have to get involved with someone who is OCD? No. It isn't specific. It's just that I'm vulnerable in certain ways. And that means, I'm, and I really want to hear this. Okay, hear this. I'm vulnerable in certain ways because I'm a human being, period, end of sentence. As a human being who's vulnerable in some ways, I do really well when I find someone or get involved with someone who has similar vulnerabilities or even better, they're strong where I'm vulnerable and I'm strong where they're vulnerable. So the real answer to your question is, I actually think with all of my heart that two troubled people together 
are best in the have the best opportunity for the highest level of healing than one person does by themselves. And to you single people, I say, you know, you're going to get well, you're going to work hard, you're going to have to work harder to build community because there won't be anyone around you at home at night. But um, but I I really this sort of smacks of codependency to me when people say, um, well, you know, uh, if I get healthier, I'm going to choose healthier people. And what's wrong with choosing the people you choose <laughs> and, you know, dealing with the brokenness that's in front of you. And so, you know, there's a lot about this in prodependence. And I completely rewrote this, Tammy, by the way, about sixes and sevens, and because it wasn't quite right. I do think, and to all of you partners, you have issues. They may not be the same issues. They may not be to the same degree as the addict, but we all have issues. Did you marry us or get involved with us because some of those issues lined up with ours? You bet. Is that a bad thing? No. If we get sober and put our lives on track, we are going to be the best couple in the world because we are working together to become stronger. And so that's how Dr. Rob looks at it. You're going to find people who are messed up and you know what you're going to discover if you haven't already that we're all a little messed up but when we find each other and we have a commitment to growth this is why i say to a lot of love addicts um date whoever you want but make sure you have a list of they can't be actively using drugs they can't be living with their ex-wife you know they can't be have they need to have a job and an apartment and a car i'm not going to date anyone that i don't run it by people who love me and and you know if you want to date someone and you don't want them to meet your family and you don't want them to meet your friends that's a bad sign because those people know you that you're healthy family they know your good choices better than anyone else so it's not that i don't believe you will ever find a healthy partner in recovery. I think that none of us will find the healthy partner. Um, I, I could go on and on about this, Tammy, as you know, I have all kinds of things I wanna say, but I'm gonna say read Prodependence. Um, there's a new version coming out over the summer and, um, and there's a whole section on why challenged people get involved with challenged people. I really don't want you spouses thinking well, that's the addict. And you said, I don't have a part in their addiction being pro-dependent. So how come you're saying I have issues? These are different things. You do not make someone act out. You do not make somebody an alcoholic. You do not create escalation in their behavior. That's their problem. But do you both probably have issues that you share and need to work on? Absolutely. And did you find just the right person to do that with? Absolutely. Which is oh, called was- a healthy relationship. And I wrote it down. We're going to do a podcast on that. Okay. Next questions. And I'm going to summarize the two. Um, I'm a male addict in recovery for 13 months. Had one relapse and some slips. Um, has been doing a lot of work for recovery. How much detail should I, he has a partner. How much detail should I give all this work? Should I share everything or keep some things to myself in between my therapist as fellows in recovery, I feel like I should share everything to be vulnerable and open as possible, but I've had some professional advice. Otherwise any advice would be appreciated. There's more. That was the continued. There's two of them. Oh, that was the continuation. Yeah, 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 I'm yeah. Sorry. I, I summarized because so, it listed like everything itemized. So I was shortening it. Well, so, I appreciate that you work at 12-step program because I don't think it's just you and your therapist. I think you need to share everything with your sponsor. Um, I'm not dropping that on folks who've never been at a 12-step meeting and you know you don't have to go out and find a sponsor. That's not what you want to do. But if you are in a recovery program, it isn't just the person who is counseling you. It's also that person who you work with and are working the steps with that you really, really need to be very clear about when you're struggling. 
As far as a spouse, here is my bottom line. The inner circle, which is your bottom line sobriety, it is a sexual act. I touched myself. I went somewhere. I touched somebody else. You know, the acts that involve sex are your inner circle, I would imagine, the unhealthy ones. If you cross one of those lines, you have broken your sobriety. If you break your sobriety, you absolutely need to go to your spouse so that they know what is going on with you. They will not be happy. They may want to leave you. They may be furious. It's not going to be a good night. But the spouse who stays is going to realize, oh, something is new here. There may be acting out, but I know about it. There's not a secret. They're not afraid to tell me. And that actually is progress. We prefer not acting out. But if that were to happen, you got to tell your spouse. You know, I can't imagine a spouse, you know, you're coming back from a meeting and saying, hey, I just got a chip for six months of going to 12-step meetings. And your spouse said, but I thought you were sober for a year. You know, that would be a very, very bad situation. Um, now, I understand that spouses want to hear everything about everything, and they want to know every single moment that went on, because that's what makes them feel safe, and they are seeking safety. Um, the reality is, if we had to answer every single question in every single moment, we would all lose our minds. And what I say to spouses is, write your questions down. You know, not when I'm like cleaning this and working on that, it's a good time to say how many prostitutes, it's just not a good time. Um, it's not your questions don't need to be answered, but but all day long is a problem. So share slips with your partner. Make sure that what is in your inner circle is sexual behavior. I know that you spouses would like, God, I'm pushing the spouses back a little bit today. I'm, but you know what? I've done this a long time. I'm not an angry spouse. I actually have information that doesn't come from that emotional place. So I think it's easier, Tammy, for me to say these things than maybe for some folks to hear it. But thinking back on it over time, you spouses will realize you do not want to be the parole officer of the person you love. You do not want to be policing them because it's not going to make you feel safer. What will make you feel safer is when we come to you and we are honest and you can begin to depend on our honesty. Tammy and I were just working on a description of what would what would help a betrayed spouse feel good about some of the work that we do. What would make them feel like this is the right situation for me? And I had to put the word honesty in because we agreed that is what what spouses want. They want honesty. They want intimacy. Um, when I hear from them, 10% is about sex and 90% is about the, how crap our relationship was. Um, in any case, um, I know spouses aren't going to want to hear this before I stop, but things that are intangible like lies don't go in the inner circle. I'm going to lie. I might straight up lie to you about having taken the garbage out when I didn't do it, you know, and then I run and take it out. But, um, but if I had to reset my sexual sobriety, if, if Tammy had to reset alcohol sobriety every time she lied to someone, she would never have five or 10 or 20 or 30 years of recovery. She'd have to, re I know you never lie, Tammy, but maybe once in a while. So can you comment on this too? That would be really well, helpful. But is it lies of omission? Is it lies of commission? Yeah, like I get I get the heebie-jeebies when I hear about, you know, having lies. I did, I want to comment back on the original question, which is, you know, should I tell everything? No, you, there's a check-in process. There's like, there's a plan. You don't have to figure this all out. I put it in the chat, Fanos, F-A-N-O-S, check-in, Google it. I put a link in if you're joining us live, you can click on it. It gives you, and you both check in. It isn't just like, oh, I'm reporting, like, you know, okay, I'm, I've been a good boy. I did this, or girl, whatever. You know, it's like, I. this is how you check in. It's how you communicate in a healthy and meaningful way. 
you know? Um, but I agree with Dr. Rob, you know, tell your sponsor, everything, tell your therapist, everything, tell your partner, the stuff that's going to help you grow as a, as a couple, listen to what your partner says at check-in too. There's a thought. It's not just all about me. It's about both of us. So I think that, you know, that's how you can help the relationship and be accountable um, uh, to grow. So Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.